Congregation, the focus of our sermon this afternoon will be on our text, which is Matthew 14, verse 33. And there we read, And those in the boat worshipped him, saying, Truly you are the Son of God. Brothers and sisters, Being a Christian does not mean that life is going to be rosy. The Bible does not promise you that life is a bed of roses. So how do we respond when we encounter difficulties or trials and struggles in our life? Sometimes we need to ask ourselves the question, are you confident that you can meet the troubles that you will encounter this coming week? Where do you get the courage to go on each day in the face of trials and difficulties? As a Christian, I hope your answer points back to Jesus Christ. Because he is the son of God. He can help us to rise above the storms that crash all around us. And restore true peace in our lives. And so I proclaim to you the word of God under the following theme and points. A storm prompts a confession. You are the son of God. And we will see, that Je- we will see Jesus' revelation as the son of God we will see the disciples' confession of the Son of God. And finally, we will see our confidence in the Son of God. Beloved, our climax in our reading in Matthew 14 is found in verse 33. And there the disciples make this confession. Truly, you are the Son of God. And this was their confession, but it had taken them a great deal of time to come to that realization. It was not an awareness that had simply come overnight. No, it had grown slowly over time. Let's face it, how easy would it have been to believe that the man Jesus was also God? After all, he he ate with them, he drank with them. At night, when he was tired, he slept. He displayed emotion. We read that he showed compassion for the crowd. He laughed and he cried, like you and me. And yet he was without sin. According to the letter to the Hebrews, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and a faithful high priest. In his humanity, he was just like us. So it wasn't all that easy to come to the conclusion that Jesus was also the Son of God. How much less were the crowds able to come to that conclusion? And that is one of Matthew's goals in writing his gospel. 
Matthew wants to prove to the Christian Jews that Jesus was the Son of God, uh, the Messiah that was prophesied to come. And so as the Gospel of Matthew unfolds, Matthew is laying out the evidence that is intended to convince his audience of this very fact. From the very onset in chapter 1, Matthew points to the genealogy of Jesus, highlighting Jesus was the son of Abraham, the father of the covenant, and that he was the son of David, the king from whom the eternal king would come, as we also heard this morning. And as we read on into chapter 2 of Matthew, the wise men acknowledge his birth as the coming of the messianic king. God himself speaks from heaven at Jesus' baptism as recorded in Matthew 3, which we read. And there God declares, this is my beloved son. And immediately following his baptism, we read about Satan's challenge to God's claim. Saying, if you are the Son of God. And in overcoming the temptation of the devil, Jesus proves that indeed he was the Son of God. But in spite of what the disciples had seen and heard, even John the Baptist isn't all that sure. And we read in chapter 11 of Matthew that he himself asks Jesus, Should I expect another? And Jesus responds by pointing out that the blind see and the lame walk. These miraculous signs were foretold by the prophet Isaiah in Isaiah 35. It was prophesied that this would happen when God brought about deliverance for his people. Isaiah says, Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened, and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer, and the tongue of the mute Sing for joy. The Jewish Christians reading Matthew's gospel were familiar with all these Old Testament prophecies. And Matthew is challenging them as he is us. Look at the evidence. This is the one prophesied about. And now at the beginning of chapter 14, Jesus does something even more telling, more magnificent. He feeds 5,000. Nothing like this had happened since the wilderness when God himself had rained down manna from heaven. Who was this Jesus who could give bread from heaven like manna in the wilderness? How was he able to do that? And that's the follow-up lesson for his disciples. But the question of how Jesus was able to feed the 5,000 Looming in the disciples' mind, Jesus, the Son of God, wants to drive the point home. He wants to teach his disciples that he is the Son of God. The one the people of Israel had been long waiting for. And Matthew records this story so that all those who weren't there could also be convinced and believe that Jesus is the Son of God. And so Jesus doesn't waste any time. He doesn't hesitate to implement this important lesson. As we begin the story of Jesus walking on the water, it says immediately, immediately following the feeding of the 5,000, Jesus 
commands them to get in the boat. The disciples were standing there in awe, each with a basket full of leftovers in their hands, and Jesus says to them, forget all that food, drop it, get into the boat, go to the other side. He made them get into the boat to cross the lake. The word made in the Greek is very strong. In fact, Jesus forced or compelled them to get into the boat. He wasn't taking no for an answer. And so with their minds still trying to process what they had just seen, they get into the boat. Likely it didn't make a lot of sense to them. Jesus was quite a distance from where the disciples were planning to land on the other side of the lake. So how was Jesus going to join them later with the boat out on the lake? Not to mention that the shoreline was very rugged and it would have been difficult for Jesus to hike the distance to the other side. But the disciples don't question their orders. And while they get underway, Jesus dismisses the crowd, our reading says. It was evening and after dismissing the crowd, he goes up the mountain alone to pray. Matthew's readers would have identified with this image. Moses had gone up the mountain on behalf of the people on more than one occasion. It was a familiar story. Moses going up the mountain to meet the Lord. Moses going up the mountain during the battle with the Amalekites, holding the staff of God while the people battled down below. Matthew is drawing our attention to this fact. Because Jesus goes up the mountain to pray on behalf of his disciples. He intercedes between the people. Like Moses. He prays for the disciples down below who are struggling against the storm. Those in the boat don't know it. Being all alone in the boat, it would have been natural to conclude that it was just them against the storm. It would have been difficult to see beyond the edges of the boat. But Matthew's readers see. Jesus is busy interceding on the disciples' behalf. And isn't that the way it is for us? When we're in the midst of our own struggles, that it's often very hard to see beyond the edges of the boat, to see what God is doing. And meanwhile, the disciples had contended with the storm for some six to ten hours. They encountered a headwind and the boat was being beaten by the waves, our reading says. The the word used here is often used to indicate a test or a trial, and sometimes even to indicate torment. And so the situation was bad. They were being tested by a trial at sea, tormented by the wind and the waves. Brothers and sisters, just imagine yourself in the boat beside the disciples, rowing over the swells with the wind howling, and after six to ten hours nearing the point of exhaustion in the midst of the storm and with the fear rising and your hope waning. That's when Jesus comes to them in the storm. Isn't it amazing, brothers and sisters? The Son of God does not leave them to struggle alone. But he goes out to them in the midst of the storm. 
our Lord and Savior, after interceding on behalf of the disciples, goes out to the boat, walking on the water. And for the Jewish Christians reading the book of Matthew, the power that Jesus displayed over the water was a clear sign of his divinity. It was the Lord who had opened up the deep and sent the rain that had destroyed the world with the flood. Job even says explicitly that God alone stretched out the heavens and trampled the waves of the sea. When Jesus walked on the water, he displayed power over the elements. By this act, our Lord Jesus Christ shows that he was the Son of God. And he confirms what we read in Matthew 3, where God the Father had declared, This is my beloved Son. But is that what the disciples initially see? As they struggle against the fierce wind and the surging waves, they look out through the darkness and see the image of our Lord Jesus Christ. They wonder how it's possible. They're about five kilometers from the shore. How was it possible that a man of flesh and blood could be walking on the water? And as a result, they conclude it must be a ghost. And even though the image they see is that of Jesus, they cry out in fear. Because in their minds, a ghost was something to be feared. And as a result, when Jesus approaches the boat, the disciples cry out. But immediately, Jesus reassures them, saying, Take courage, take heart, it is I, do not be afraid. And again, the Jewish readers would have recognized this statement of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. It is I, the Greek equivalent of the Hebrew, I am. Jesus is declaring to his disciples that he is God. Take heart, I am. I am is the way the Lord had identified himself to Moses. When Moses had asked who he should tell, the people had sent him. Jesus takes that name. Do not be afraid. Jesus is saying, take heart. I am God. Look, I am walking on the sea. And if that isn't clear enough to convince you, then listen up. I am. In other words, I am the Son of God. And so you have nothing to fear. This was the declaration of the faithful covenant God who had delivered his people from slavery, who had delivered them out of the hands of the Egyptians by bringing them through the Red Sea on dry ground. Jesus is saying, that's me. I am the great I am. And I will deliver you from this storm so that you have nothing to be afraid of. And that brings us to our second point. The disciples of the confession of the Son of God. Peter, sitting in the boat, seeing our Lord and Savior and listening to what he says, Peter makes the connection. Quickly, he calls him Lord. The Hebrew equivalent to the word used here refers to Yahweh, the covenant God. Peter makes a confession that Jesus was indeed the I am that he claimed to be. And his response is, if it is you. And this was not congregation, a statement of doubt. 
where he's wondering, well, if it is you, Peter had just addressed him as Lord. The statement rather has the meaning of, since it is you. And so Peter's statement is a statement of faith. If it is you, the I am, since you are God, command me to come to you on the water. And in response to Peter's confession, Jesus says, come. Jesus, the Son of God, was the Lord of the sea. He was able to sustain Peter as he walked forward in faith. And so Peter steps over the edge of the boat and he places his feet upon the water as if it was solid ground. With his eyes fixed on Jesus, he begins to walk up and down the swelling waves with the wind howling through his hair. One step after another, he goes towards his Lord walking upon the water. But what happens? Peter's faith doesn't sustain him. Our reading says that when he saw the wind, his fear got the better of him. He faltered in the face of the storm and he began to sink. And it would be natural, brothers and sisters, to think that somehow Peter had failed. But beloved, we should not think that Peter has shown himself to be a failure at faith. No, rather he shows himself to be what we all are. Sinful human beings wrought with weakness and shortcomings. It's so easy for our gaze to be diverted from the one who can sustain us through the storms of this life. To focus on our own fear. And doesn't it happen to you all? When we place our faith in the Son of God, He can sustain us in life's trials. But how often don't we shrink back under our own fear? I can't bear the thought of never having another drink, another pull of the slot machine, another peek at those movies on the internet. I know I should stand up for the honor of the Lord's name, but what will my classmates, my peers, or my colleagues think of me? I know I should give cheerfully, but there's so many bills. What if I can't make ends meet at the end of the month? And so Peter falters in the face of his fear, like we all do. But in the midst of Peter's faltering faith, he does one thing right. He cries out to the Lord, Lord, save me. Jesus, the Son of God, had the power to save him. He reaches out his hand and he pulls Peter safely into the boat. In spite of his weakness of faith, Jesus saves him. But he challenges him. Why? He challenges us. Why did you doubt? Why doubt? After seeing Jesus walk on the water and after leaping out of the boat to rise above the storm, why did Peter doubt who Jesus was? He knew that Jesus was the Son of God. And yet his faith fell short. But isn't that the way it works in this sinful world, even among God's people? It's a reminder that your confidence cannot rest in your own faith. As if you merit salvation because of your own personal walk of faith. 
what Lord's Day 23 says in question and answer 61. Not that I am acceptable to God on account of the worthiness of my faith. No, rather true faith rests upon the worthiness of the Son of God. He didn't falter. And he pulled Peter safely into the boat and calmed the storm. And this brings us to our final point. Our confidence in the Son of God. So why does it matter that we acknowledge that Jesus is the Son of God? When Jesus asks the disciples in Matthew 16 who they thought he was, Peter replied, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. The confession that Jesus is the Son of God is a confession of faith. It is a confession that was not revealed by man, but by God. God is busy working faith in our lives. It's what 1 Corinthians 12 verse 3 teaches us. Therefore, I want you to understand that no one speaking in the Spirit of God ever says Jesus is accursed, and no one can say Jesus is Lord except in the Holy Spirit. Jesus used a trial to reveal that he was the Son of God so that his disciples would believe. He worked this faith through the trial that he sent at sea. <coughs> Sometimes, congregation, the most penetrating lessons are the ones we learn in the midst of our trials and struggles. And during this trial, Jesus reveals to the disciples that he was the Son of God. And when we are brought to confess this truth, then the reality is, congregation, that we are truly blessed. It means that Jesus, the Son of God, is busy revealing himself to us, declaring himself to be your Savior. Sometimes you might wonder why the Lord allows trials in your life, but sometimes trials can be a blessing that help you to see most clearly that Jesus, the Son of God, is at work in your life. And we can be confident that Jesus does not leave us to fend for ourselves in the storm. No, he intercedes for us like he did on the mountain for his disciples. When we are in the boat fighting the wind and the waves, we may not always see it. But Romans 8 verse 34 reminds us that Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Because we are unable to overcome the trials of this life in our own strength. Jesus went to the cross, suffering the greatest trial ever experienced by a man. He was punished for your sin, so that when you are in the boat struggling against the wind and the wave, you can count on him to defend and preserve you. And he was able to accomplish this because he was the Son of God. Jesus being the Son of God gives us confidence that even though you might falter in the midst of the storm, he will save you when you cry out to him in faith and when it becomes too much 
He pulls us into the boat. And he calms the storm. The disciples took what they had learned to heart. From their writings, we can see that they had indeed learned this important lesson. James encourages those that seek something from the Lord to do so with no doubting. For the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. Believe that the Son of God can answer your prayer after all. He could walk upon the waves of the sea. He does not leave you on your own, but he intercedes for you. And Peter says to us in 1 Peter 4, verses 12 and 13, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice in so far as you share Christ's suffering, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. Beloved, Peter says, do not be surprised by fiery trials. He had been there on the waves. He learned that Jesus was the Son of God. And what was his advice? We find it a few verses later. In verse 19, Therefore let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. Trials. Help you to place your trust where it belongs, in Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Listen to how Peter speaks about trials in the beginning of his letter, with, which is addressed to the elect God's people. 1 Peter 1, verse 1 and follow says, In this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while, if need be, you have been grieved by various trials, that the genuineness of your faith, being much more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to praise, honor, and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ, whom having not seen you love, though you do not see him, yet believing you rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory, receiving the end of your faith, the salvation of your souls, the trials that we face are refining us so that we can confess with the disciples in the boat that Jesus is the Son of God. Even though we may not have seen him, and by this confession we rejoice not only in the midst of our trials, but we can count ourselves blessed that by these trials, we have come to know the Son of God. For to have Christ revealed to you is to overcome the greatest storm you will ever face in this life, your sin and misery. When, we cry out in, when you cry out in your sin and Christ lifts you safely into the boat, your response can only be one thing, beloved. Praise. For the Son of God has secured for you the salvation of your soul. And we can be confident in him that we will receive the goal of our faith. Brothers and sisters, Peter confesses his faith 
that Jesus is the Son of God. And in that moment of certainty, he steps out of the boat, rising above the adversity of the storm. And with his eyes fixed on Jesus, he walked upon the water. And when his gaze shifted from the Son of God to the storm winds of the sea, he sank. Yet he was not lost. That is because the Son of God does not falter like sinful human beings. As a result, we have reason to be confident in the Son of God. For when we fail to keep our eyes fixed upon Jesus and fall into sin or weakness, He can deliver me and bring me safely into the boat. He overcame the trial on the cross, conquering sin and death for His people. That is why I can be confident in the face of adversity. When I confess that Jesus is the Son of God and I cry out to Him to save me, then He is my Savior. And He will not let me drown in the sea of my trouble. Amen.